funny kinds of freedom, funny notions of freedom, funny theories of freedom is the topic of my lecture tonight. And um, before I get to the funny theories, I think it wise to take you on a general tour of the notion of freedom, which I begin in a very odd way, because I know what to say about it. Other people are mystified. Anyway, freedom is a three-place relation. Everybody got that? Ever hear of a three-place relation? Not just two places, like brother and sister, brother of, sister of, but a three-place relation, like X is between Y and Z. The three-place relation. Freedom is a three-place relation between, let's see if one of these writes. <laughs> Blank one is a person. Person is free from. Blank two is a hindrance. And so may blank three do or be something. Um, there is a crackpot kind of um, intellectual history that says, well, uh, freedom is uh, divided into two kinds. There's freedom from uh, uh, and freedom for. It's a crackpot distinction. If you're not free from anything, you're not free for anything, okay? People who miss the uh, three-place relation here make the same mistake as the, as the, what is it called? The National Education Society. We teach the child, not the subject. <laughs> Say the educators. I mean, if you don't teach a subject, you don't teach children, eh? And vice, I mean, it's ridiculous. You gotta have all three places. And, of course, when you make a statement about somebody's being free, you don't have to mention all of the place fillers, the blank fillers, but if you make a complete statement, you do. And let me illustrate my first key point, and that is, that we classify the kinds of freedom by what goes into the second blank, the kind of hindrance. So for example, a bird is free from a cage, and so may fly, okay? A man is free from his straitjacket, <laughs> and so may move. Okay? If, the, if you fill the second blank in that way, you're talking about what we call physical freedom. This is clear. Simple. Here's another version. Jones is free from his mother's apron strings. <laughs> and so may do as he pleases. Mm-hmm. And how about the people are free from police surveillance 
and so may travel where they wish. Okay? This is social freedom, political freedom. Uh, again, the, the kind of hindrance is what makes it that kind of freedom. And in the same vein, I suppose we have a nation is free from foreign rule and so may conduct its own affairs. Okay? Besides the physical freedom and the political, social emancipation, whatever, there's also artistic freedom. Fill in the first blank with Beethoven. He's free from classical conventions and so may write original music. Yes? Yes. Mr. Smith is free from preconceived ideas and so may look at the issue afresh. Everybody see? If you're dealing with some sort of art or cultural attainment, that's what, the, that's what this kind of freedom is the absence of a hindrance to. Okay? And then, finally, Mr. Jones, again, Jones, is free from internal compulsion and so may choose art rather than law for his profession. Okay. Now, as long as he was under his father's thumb, he didn't have that option. You will make money, my son. You will go to law school. Now he's free of that. And he really wants to get into his, uh, his beloved um, artistic work. And um, there's no, he, ha he doesn't have an internal compulsion that would stand in the way of that. That last kind of freedom is what we call free choice, okay? Absence of an internal compulsion. An internal compulsion is something inside our psychological processes, like an uncontrolled habit, an impulse, a blind spot, an automatic reaction. Anything that would cut off deliberation, short-circuit deliberation, is the kind of internal compulsion I'm talking about. Now, nobody doubts the existence of any of these kinds of freedom except the last. Okay? Determinists, Fatalists, astrologers, Calvinists of various stripes hold, roughly speaking, that an apparent absence of internal compulsion is always an illusion. I call these people freedom's malcontents. And I'm going to get back to their views in a moment. But um, 
In the meantime, I want to talk about all these types of freedom briefly, as though there were no question about any of them. And you'll see how common sense my way of talking is. The reason the kinds of hindrance are the basis for classifying the kinds of freedom is that hindrances don't just hinder different things, but hinder in different ways. You're reminded of that fact every time you have to deal with thugs. How so? Well, most of us are aware that considerations of decency, custom, duty, reverence, and the like are real considerations. They matter. They hinder some of our sportier projects in a non-physical way. But thugs understand nothing but the fist. A sense of duty works differently from a fist, and so is lost on persons of a cretinous type. More to the point. Since fists, duties, and bad habits are different, the kind of freedom defined by the absence of one is often independent of the kind defined by the absence of another. Talk about free of the cage. Birds, bees, falling rocks can have or lack physical freedom without even being candidates for the other kind. Right? A man in a straitjacket lacks physical freedom, but he may be exercising his political freedom. For perhaps he's put on that straitjacket as part of a political demonstration. This is me and Hillary's America, never mind. <laughs> Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag lacked both physical and political freedom, obviously, but he nurtured his creativity, his artistic freedom, and a punk. I want you to think about a punk recently out of school and liberated by calendar age from the last vestiges of parental authority. This punk is unmarried, between jobs, has a car, a few bucks in his pocket. He has the physical and social freedom of which American adolescents dream. Hmm? but he may be a prisoner of such loutish habits, drug dependencies, or other self-indulgences that he lacks the capacity for free choice in large areas of his life. In fact, think about an unattached and undiagnosed lunatic footloose in San Francisco. He's socio-politically free without a shred of free choice unless he happens to have lucid intervals. Okay, so it's easy to see 
that a piece of libertarian legislation which expands the set of options immune to penalty and thus expands political freedom in a very good sense of that phrase may have as a side effect the suffocation of free choice because vices psychologically destructive to free choice may expand through opportunities protected by the libertarian law. Yes? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that always happens or that restrictive laws are a better idea on the whole. Much depends. But, but I'm not saying much about that because controlling vice is not something government is good at. Much depends upon the cultural climate of a people and their religious temper. I'm only saying that people who fail to distinguish political freedom from free choice, who imagine that the expansion of political freedom guarantees the vigor of free choice, have a simplistic view of the problem. Let that count as my first funny theory. It's not really a funny theory of freedom. It's a funny mistake based on not having a coherent theory. Now, aside from the fact that the kinds of freedom line up with the kinds of hindrances, and the hindrances impede our wishes in different independent ways, couple more remarks about hindrances are in order. Okay. The absence of a hindrance is not always called freedom. It's called freedom only in proportion as its absence is realistically possible. Many people have no talent but they yearn to have a career in the movies. So suppose they say to you, well, I, I, I'm not free to go to Hollywood. Huh? That would be misleading. You think you're not free to, you mean your wife won't leave Metuchen? Is that the problem? No, it's just a funny way of saying, I got no talent, therefore I can't do it. You can't talk about freedom where there's no possibility, right? Similarly, I am sorry to say I am not free. No. I'm neither free nor not free to play the bagpipes. <laughs> I have no capacity. I never practiced. I never held a set in my hand. I have no capacity to play. And so um, the fact that I don't play is not a result of unfreedom. Right? The serious point here is that freedom is, freedom builds upon ability. That which a hindrance hinders is something we would otherwise be able to do. Okay? Hence, freedom is the absence of a hindrance 
and is predicated upon a real capacity. In this way, issues affecting ability are deeper than issues affecting freedom, especially if we mean freedom of the so in the social sense of just being footloose um, or having immunities and rights under a limited government, which is a fine thing. Why is it a different, why is it deeper to look at ability? Because the factors that corrupt ability, like failing health, bad character, poor education, shrink the capacity to enjoy the freedoms we have on paper. Ain't it? Um, one more remark about this. Hindrances are relative to goals. Okay. What is or is not a hindrance depends on what you're trying to do or what you wish you were trying to do. Okay. And so, what is or is not freedom also depends upon the goals we have. The Bible is well aware of this. If your only goal is sensual pleasure, libertinage is freedom. Right? But if your goal is getting to heaven, and that which crushes hindrances to your doing so is the presence and operation of the Holy Spirit, then, as St. Paul says, the presence of the Holy Spirit is liberty. That is freedom. That's right. There's a story about a delegation of Spanish anarchists who went to the Soviet Union in the early 1920s. And uh, they looked around and they, they liked a lot of what they saw, but something bothered them. And finally they got a chance to have a chat with Lenin about this. And they said, Oi, comrade, it looks all wonderful, but what about liberty? La liberté, what about it? Lenin's answer was, liberty, pourquoi faire? <laughs> liberty to do what? Here's his point. In a thoroughly collective estate, the list of human goals is politically defined. And liberty is just exactly the non-hindrance of those goals. So if you feel a lack of liberty in the proletarian paradise, it's because you are entertaining unsanctioned goals. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Do we have, then, a situation where what is and is not freedom 
is just dependent upon what goals people have to have or what happen to have. Do we have a way to defend an objective account of what really is freedom and what makes a free society a good society? Do we have something objective to say about that? Something to say to Lenin? Well, yes, we do. It just requires conducting a critique of goals. This is where the topic of freedom uh, loops into the larger picture of moral theology. There are certain goals, certain goods, certain ends, certain values, which are universally valid because they're above reproach. And no one should ever be blocked from pursuing them. Other goals that some people have are, in fact, objectively wrong. And putting hindrances in front of those is not evil. A good society should do so. Does everybody see? A critique of goals that gives you to some objective answers about what are the real goods of man will give you a grounded account of uh, real freedom and the advantages of a genuinely free society. And I think the way to begin the defense of a free society is just like this. Unfree societies do their citizens a fundamental injustice by imposing wrong values upon them or blocking them from the self-directed pursuit of goods which are above reproach. Okay? Free society, a free society does not do such a thing to its citizens. It doesn't subject them to that kind of injustice. Okay? Uh, once you see that that's how the defense of a free society should begin, you begin to see the lamentable weakness of other approaches. Ask a neoconservative how we're supposed to defend our vision of liberty in the Middle East. Oh dear. They're going to talk about all our political freedom and all our prosperity. And isn't it wonderful? And our standard of living? And the trouble is that our most dangerous enemies have steely-eyed visions of justice in which material abundance of the kind we have is rejected. You can't sell them on the merits of a free society by an argument like that. Oh, and equally hopeless is the idea. Well, let's defend the merit of a free society this way. Uh, the really good goals are the ones which the individual chooses for himself or herself. 
They're really good because they are self-chosen. <laughs> no matter what they are substantively, we can't get into that. <laughs> A defense of free society that goes like that is what I call a request for assisted suicide. <laughs> you give that idea to a guy who is a conscientiously committed totalitarian. And that argument becomes a note uh, to pull the trigger. You're handing him a gun and it's a note attached that says, pull this trigger, please. Yes. Your self-chosen goal is, yeah, it's wonderful. Bang. Goodbye me. Right? All right. Now, I'm coming near the end of this uh, general overview. All talk of freedom is a matter of degree, a matter of more or less. Uh, a hindrance is bad depending on how severely it hinders, and they don't all hinder in the same way. A man in a straitjacket has more physical freedom than a total paralytic. A middle-class bachelor has more freedom to do as he pleases than a man with a mortgage and a growing family. A person with relatively few bad habits, compulsions, tics, vices, has a wider scope for free choice in his or her life than a person with multiple such bad habits. Okay, now I want to give you a rash superlative. What is the worst? The worst of all hindrances. What would that be? I want to advance the answer, nothing. What is the worst of all hindrances? Nothing. Nothing happening, nothing to do, nothing for sale, no place to go. In other words, <coughs> the sum of all hindrances, so to speak, is having no options. Does everybody see? And um, having no options is not just a distillation of various hindrances, but it's also a very particular hindrance on the many occasions when what we want is to have a choice. Now, I'll speak for myself. I don't always want to have a choice. No, I don't. I don't want to have to choose which closet is going to be mine every night. <laughs> it's a waste of my time. And I don't want there to be uncertainty about where my slippers are in the morning. <laughs> so there are things where I don't, and, and also I don't care to have a choice when I'm I, out ice skating with my mother and I see her begin to fall. I don't want to have a choice between rushing to her aid and watching in detached curiosity 
the trajectory of her fall. (laughs) So I don't always want to have a choice, but often enough I do. For the most part, I want to have a choice. What's the common property of deserts, one-horse towns, and totalitarian states? They frustrate your desire to have a choice. Isn't that it? That's why the deserts tend to stay empty. The one-horse towns are abandoned by the majority of their youth. And uh, totalitarian states would become deserts if they didn't seal their borders. So to have a choice is, generally speaking, a good thing. And there are motives for wanting to have a choice that are deeply connected with life and reason. Reasons that go to the roots of human existence and not just the spoiled habits of bourgeois consumers. You prefer to participate in life rather than having it just handed to you, right? In acting, you prefer to make an informed decision. And your decision is in general better informed after you've considered the merits of several options. Ah. So for deep reasons, you want to have a choice. You want to have options. And um, therefore, I I can think of two or 3,000 reasons why nobody in his or her right mind would prefer living in Pyongyang to living in Boston, which is no city of my devotion. But Pyongyang, my God. So I want you, I hope you now begin to see what a huge slice of life turns upon having a choice. How much of life assumes that it's not the case that we have no options. Ha! Now I come to it. That we do in fact have no options is the determinist thesis that all we could do is what we do do, and there's no doing anything about it. Okay? That's the thesis of the malcontented determinists, fatalists, astrologers, Calvinists, and others. I wanted you to feel, get a feel for what an odd thesis this is. It isn't odd because it contradicts such a big slice of practical experience, it's it's odd because it says it doesn't. Get this. Yes, say the determinists, we have no freedom. But this is true in such a deep and peculiar sense that everything I've said so far remains true. It is worthwhile to stay out of prison and straitjackets, they say, even though we have no freedom. It's worthwhile to cut the apron strings, move to Boston, fight totalitarians, even though we have no freedom. 
It's worthwhile to cultivate genius, open-mindedness, and creativity, even though we have no freedom. It's worthwhile to have good habits rather than bad ones. Worthwhile to be sane rather than driven by irrational compulsions. Worthwhile to be cured of knee-jerk reactions and blind fetishes. And worthwhile to avoid drugs and their addictions even though we have no freedom. Are you getting this? What the heck is this freedom that we're supposed to lack? Well, it's not just some particular freedom I haven't mentioned yet, whose absence sort of cankers everything. It's not that there's this one particular freedom that we're still missing, like the freedom to flaunt nudity in public places. Okay, I'm sure some idiot in Carmel, California believes <laughs> that that is the missing secret to happiness. <laughs> but that's not what the determinists are saying. What they're saying is something vastly broader The very freedom which is exercised in all the specific freedoms, the freedom of having an option, a choice, they say, is bogus. Now, does everybody see? Okay. Enough of my general introduction. I have already talked you deaf, I'm talking myself deaf, dumb, and blind. And um, I'm finally getting to an example of um, a funny notion of freedom. What makes a notion of freedom a funny one is that it says there's no option. You're free, but you've got no option. Okay? Now, there is no such thing as a Catholic thinker. And you know me, I'm, I'm like a wolf. I mainly like to go after Catholic thinkers because if they're heretics, they need to be bitten. <laughs> but um, I mainly go after them, and none of them that I've been able to tell actually says there's no such thing as freedom. No. But they restrict it in funny ways and take away options. I am reminded of a notorious heretic named Michael Bayus, B-A-I-U-S. In French, his name was Michel Dubay, B-A-Y, Dubay. And um, he's usually just called Bayus. And he advanced a thesis about human freedom, which is the main one that got him in trouble, but also a thesis about God's freedom. Okay. He said, in human beings, freedom isn't about anything internal. It's just the absence of coercion. Okay. 
he believed in a Calvinist kind of efficacious grace. Okay? Grace comes into your soul, muscles aside your free will, compels you to do that which God wants you to do, makes you will to do it. Okay? Is that compulsion? Piously, he will say, oh no, what God does in us isn't compulsion. No. Right. But it turns out that when you are operating under efficacious grace, you have no option but to do exactly what God is willing you to do and empowering you to do by that grace. Okay? And um, so may a sinful man will do, can do, only what he does do, and there's no doing anything about it. Because what he does do is what God willed him to do, and he could not do otherwise because grace uh, short circuits the human free will in some sense and um, results in a man with no option. Now this is hard to bear, but I want you to put yourself in the position, I know this is going to take some imagination, put yourself in the position of a man or woman who has been for years involved in ugly sin and wants to get out, <coughs> wants to change his or her life, okay? Well, that kind of decision takes a while to sink in. It takes a while for you to really come to grips with that and really wrap your whole self around it. And in the meantime, maybe you fall a few times. You fell, why? Because you didn't have the grace not to. You fell because that's what God wanted you to do. Okay? And so every time I fall into sin, I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. How do you like that? <laughs> I go out and squander the college's money. It's what God wanted me to do. Never mind, we had a trustee like that. <laughs> um, so much for Calvinism and bios. Now, how did Bias attack the freedom of God? Okay. He had a famous proposition according to which the, the doctors who say that God could have created man without grace are in error. 
God could not have created man without grace, said Bios. He had reasons for that. He thought our very nature ordered us and ordained us to grace. Our nature needed it. So we had to have it. So God couldn't create us without it. Everybody see? That thesis that God could not create us without grace has been revived in 20th century theology. I'm almost out of time here tonight, and I'm just getting to my good stuff. I'm ready to bite 20th century heretics. <laughs> ah, that's all right. Maurice Blondel was a French Catholic philosopher, graduate of the Sorbonne, one of the few Catholics to get out of that place in one piece. Um, uh, he, was, he was pretty orthodox in his, in his life and so on. The Masons wouldn't let him hold a job in Paris, so he must have been sincere. <laughs> That's right. He ended up teaching way down in the south of France in the sticks for his whole life. But anyway, he maintained that any possible human being would be ordered to grace. Okay? Part of his reason for saying that was that any possible human being would need grace. Well, I agree. The scholastics agreed. St. Thomas agreed. Any possible human being would need grace for certain purposes. If you were to sustain a morally good life for a considerable period of time, and certainly if you want to get to heaven, you need grace. No question about it. But of course, God didn't have to call men to supernatural salvation. God might have left heaven off the table. That's what Bias was denying. Blondell also wanted to deny it. No way God could have left grace off the table. No, no, no. Any possible human being would be ordained to grace, ordered to it. All right? And in addition to a need, this was a positive or ordination in response to a divine offer. Okay? I don't want to quote this guy by the yard. Blondell is very frustrating to quote. But I do want to put to him the question that may have occurred to you. Okay, every possible human being would be ordained to grace because he or she would be offered it. Um, I thought grace was supposed to be a free gift. I thought grace was what we weren't owed. If we're owed it, it's not grace, it's wages, right? So how about that? Blondell said, no problem. I'll just work that into a second proposition. 
about grace. It says any possible human would be ordered to what he or she is not owed. There. Anybody's ordered to grace. So any, anybody and everybody will be or, is ordered to what he or she is not owed. Grace. Good. Great, I mean. <laughs> what Blondell didn't realize is that owed and not owed are not ordinary descriptive predicates. They are deontic modal operators. Did you think I'd get through tonight without bringing up the topic of modal logic? <laughs> you are wrong. <laughs> I love it. Worked on it for years. The connection is this. Look, modal logic is usually about the possible and the necessary. Only what is possible can be owed or not owed. Just as only the possible can be permitted or forbidden. Okay? How about passing a law in Front Royal that forbids any resident of this city in this great state, forbids it under penalty of prison <coughs> to jump to Mars? <laughs> What's the point? There's no forbidding the impossible. It's absurd. All right? And likewise, there's no forbidding the necessary. Nobody in this town is to breathe. <laughs> no. Can't do that. The permitted and the not permitted, the owed and the not owed, the obligatory and the not obligatory are all about the contingent things that are possible. And so... If any possible human would be ordered to what he or she is not owed, but not owed means permissibly not given, then any possible human would be ordered to what some possible human would not be ordered to. The not owed okay, is what you're not ordered to. Because Blondell says you can't avoid the ordination to grace. Okay? You're going to be ordained to grace whether you want to or not because it's God's only option. Oops. No other option. So you're going to be ordained to grace. Oh, yeah, but it's a free gift. Yeah, but free doesn't mean uh, it might not be. Yeah, but not owed means it's permissible for it not to be given. And what the heck is a gift that can't not be given? <laughs> <coughs> I've never given any gifts that couldn't not be given. I don't think it's possible logically. <laughs> Blondell had an answer. Believe it or not, he had an answer to this. It all remains free and gratuitous and permissibly not given and so on because 
God might not have created the human race at all. Right. This is true, but irrelevant. <laughs> because the gratuity of a gift to its recipient is a different issue from the contingency of existence to a creature. Okay? And it returned Blondell to a very nasty statement. It would mean that in every possible world in which God did create us, he we would be ordered to grace. Huh? Does he have to order us to grace? No, he might not create us. Oh, I get it. But if he does, he has to order us to grace. Is that right? Well, yeah. In other words, God create, could not create rational creatures without ordering them to grace. That proposition sound familiar? It was condemned in 1950 by Pius XII in his wonderful encyclical Humani Generis. Okay. Now, I'm out of time for tonight. I wanted to get into Henri de Lubac, who sucked up no end of goodies from Blondel <laughs> and had the same basic scheme and wanted to argue that well, God couldn't fail to give us grace. Why? Because we need it. Okay, so what? Well, because we have a natural inclination for it. Natural tendency cannot be totally frustrated. Hello? <laughs> um, by the way, that, that piece of Aristotle's biology would have been very interesting news to the dodo. <laughs> All dinosaurs, trilobites, and so on had a natural inclination to continue the species, didn't they? What do you mean a natural inclination cannot be in vain? Oh, yeah, but this is theology. We don't, we don't pay attention to trilobites. <laughs> and anyway, Lubach wanted to argue from the natural desire to see God, so uh, it can't be altogether frustrated, so God has to give us that vision. Uh-huh. And then it turns out that, well, he, he has to give it to us because um, his goodness compels him to. Okay. It wouldn't be generous. It wouldn't be worthy of God not to give us the vision. Okay. So once again, God really has no option. To which I ask, are you saying that not giving the vision was possible or impossible? All impossible. Okay, if it was impossible, then um, uh, God couldn't have done it anyway, right? Oh, no, it's only impossible because, because, because it's against his character. Oh. So, you know, God could violate his character? Okay. Now, I understand that about people. My character is easily violated. I've done it about 20,000 times. 
But God can't violate his character, can he? So what you're really saying is that the non-bestowal of grace is impossible. Whereupon it can't be free. Can't be free. Does everybody see? All right, well, I don't want to get any deeper into this stuff. I've got more heresies to go through, and I haven't mentioned yet the Hegelian clowns from the end of the 19th century who also came up with this idea that God really wasn't free not to create, and indeed not free not to create us. Why, why, why? Okay, I'm going to give you this in one sentence. It's just so funny. God necessarily loves himself, right? Yeah. So God necessarily loves what all he understands. Yeah. His, 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 his thought, his mind, his... Yeah. Well, God can't understand himself without understanding his negation. Hello, Hegel. <laughs> Okay. God can't understand himself without understanding his not me. I get to know me by knowing the not me. God knows he's not me, but the not me is the world. So God can't love himself without uh, making the world. Oh. <laughs> Did he have to make the was it was it no not not like natural necessity no 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 it was it was utterly free because it was pure love the love we're with he never mind the point is he had no option does everybody see what I mean by funny theories of freedom good night.